Hey, and thanks for listening to More Than Miscellaneous. I'm your host, Dean Kapitsky. Today on the show, I'm talking to President Bradley about COVID and a host of other college-related issues, as well as Lucy Brewster on her article on the endowment and VCXC Talks National. So without further ado, here's my conversation with President Bradley. It is something that the college has to be concerned with, the globe is concerned with. So we have to be very careful and vigilant in watching the data um, following the science as it emerges. Now it has been a week, a week and a half um, since this news really broke. And I think every day we get by is better and better. Um, and when I say get by, I mean with relatively limited prevalence of those fully vaccinated being hospitalized with Omicron. And that's really what we want to avoid. Um, and you know, I think we still need time. Lots of researchers are on this, and we need time before we can really evaluate its full impact. Are you having conversations um, with other administrators about how to approach this, or is this even a concern right now for Vassar? Uh, daily, I talk with experts in public health and medical researchers. Um, a couple of my friends actually have some of the largest grants given by NIH to study COVID. So I've been in touch with them to say, okay, where are we with this? Uh, I think a lot of presidents are kind of sitting and watching, um, but I do feel like over the next couple of weeks, that's really when we'll know a lot more. Okay. And is that different because of your public health background? Would you be as, as involved if you didn't have that background? Hard to really imagine um, what it would be like not to have this background, but I do think it helps me have the connections to people who are really at the front line of this and then to understand the science. Um, but I do think every president is really devoting a lot of time to this. It's such a central part of our sort of leadership at this point. Mm -hmm. So fast forwarding, assuming that Omicron is not going to be an issue um, with boosters and continuing low positive results on campus. Um, can you, have you started to imagine what the spring might look like at Vassar? Yeah, you know, we have two major decisions to make. One of them is whether we will require people to get a booster six or seven months after they've had their second vaccination. Uh, and we're evaluating that right now. Um, again, one is not to get a booster until you have been a full six months after the second vaccination. And some of our students and employees didn't get the vaccination, you know, till September or so. So uh, we can't automatically mandate it immediately in January. Um, but we are really thinking about how to roll that in. And then the second piece is masking. And masking is a complicated issue, as we all know. It is globally, nationally, and even on our campus. Um, and so we're thinking hard, again, looking at the literature, how important will it be to be fully masked as we are now, for instance, in classes, in small group meetings, or can we loosen that? Um, and so those are really the two big decisions that we're, we're tussling with right now to figure out what the best way forward will be. Okay. Um, and zooming out even further, uh -huh. When this is all over, um, is there something that you'll look back on uh, or something that you learned or memory that will stick out from the pandemic era? You, you recently said we've had our fourth semester in COVID, I think, in a Sunday. Yeah, yeah I did. Can you believe that? Four I, semesters in COVID. Oh, my gosh. We never, it's crazy. Actually, it's sort of an interesting statistic that if this were the 1918 flu, and it lasted the same amount of time. We would be done in April. Now, what, what, is that, what does that mean that the pandemic is done exactly? Well, for the flu of 1918, it's a very good question because of course there still was the flu around, uh, but the sense that it wasn't a public health emergency anymore is really what got called off in um, the equivalent of what would be April this year in 1918. Um, but for us, this question of when is it over, this pandemic, what is the indicator that it's over? No, that is not really a scientific question. That's really much more of a political and a social question. Um, scientifically, scientists mostly think that we will have a derivative of SARS, of COVID-19 around for a very, very, very long time, um, and that we'll learn to live with it, and it'll be less and less virulent, but maybe more and more transmissible. So the question is, when do you feel, okay, this is more like flu, you have to really be careful not to get it, 
but you also can continue normal operations. And I think we're all kind of trying to um, feel our way through this. I will say we've learned a lot over this time. And I think you asked that question. Um, yeah, yeah and, I think I did this on track. <laughs> I think one of the critical learnings is to communicate a lot, ask people at all different parts of the college and in Poughkeepsie and in Dutchess County, what should we be doing? How are you feeling? Are you feeling comfortable? You're not feeling comfortable? And kind of you're managing two situations at once. You're trying to be incredibly safe from a physical health point of view, and you're trying to be open enough that we can have strong social fabric and socializing. And sometimes these work against each other. So you really have to calibrate both at once. And I think that ambidexterity that's really needed um, to manage through the pandemic has been one of our largest challenges, but communicating a lot and, and listening a lot, I think is something we've really learned is the most important. Yeah, I saw that you, you have a, a paper, is it already out or coming out uh, sort of about this issue? Yeah, uh, it is coming out. Um, it hasn't been fully reviewed yet, but it will come out. Um, that is about organizational resilience uh, in unexpected crises. I wonder why they asked me to write this, but yeah, it is forthcoming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about mental health and monitoring the situation. I'm curious, when is, is the mental health and safety physical safety of students, is that, does that become um, a zero sum thing? Like when, when does that have to be, um, sac when does one have to be sacrificed for the other? Mm. If you can be specific that's, about. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. You know, I think with creative leadership and creative um, solutions at the front line, you can really have both. Um, the thing is, at individual moments, there may be trade-offs. So you might really want to go to that party or down to the bar in Poughkeepsie, but honestly, that's definitely going to compromise your physical health. So for individuals at individual moments, you can see the trade-offs. But on a community level, I think really if we can talk a lot, come to a place where um, we're masking enough to be safe, like in large events, but we're allowing masking to be more voluntary in smaller sites. In that way, I think we protect both people's mental health and socializing ability and their physical health. So you're always kind of looking to get your cake and eat it too. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned parties as sort of like an individual choice that would, that could um, endanger someone's health. Or is that part of the decision-making process that you know, some people are going to party no matter what, they're going to be congregations and then you just have to factor in that to what the guidelines are? Yes. I mean, that's harm reduction 101. Yeah. You have to assume that people are going to party. They are, you know, going to take risks. Um, and so as a result, you might need to shore up some other processes. So an example of this is, you know, students are going to go to New York City and they're going to hang out for a weekend. They might, you know, go to a Knicks game or, you know, administrators might go to a Knicks game. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Well, we are educating like crazy. If you have any symptoms, get tested immediately. Make the testing super accessible. And then anyone who's positive immediately is quarantined um, or isolated, I should say. And we do this extensive contact tracing. So it's sort of allowing for the fact there are going to be risks. People are going to get COVID, but we're going to minimize how many people get it by sort of the intense fast reaction after you get an infection. And I think that's harm reduction. You know, the other approach is you just say, no, you cannot do any of that. But what would happen? People would just break those rules. Um, and I think it's a safe enough environment that we have, at least judging by the cases we've had, that this harm reduction approach, allowing people to leave campus this year, allowing people to have parties, but really reacting quickly when we have a case. No, morning, noon, or night, we react quickly. I mean, they're really people 24-7 on this. And I think that's to keep it safe for what we know students and everybody else will just naturally do during the school year. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the, the two options we have is that we're in this phase now, but before there were vaccines, we were in this lockdown situation. Right. It's, all, it's almost, I wonder if it, if it was necessary, if we could go back to that, that mindset. It sort of, when you look back over the two and a half years, it sort of seems like we've been 
all of us together, the whole campus has been steering in a healthy way. We've gotten to a healthy place, but really every week things have been different, trying to react to what is the danger out there and what is the best strategy for it. And, and how much is this hard to do? And we have to change it by listening to people complain and then realize that <laughs> we can't do this anymore. We have to do it differently. Yeah. Well, that sort of brings up my next question, complaining. Uh, how has uh, COVID changed your job? Uh, president, um, you know, I assume you're fielding even more calls from parents. Yeah. Um, gee, I mean, it's made the job really meaningful in some ways because there's nothing like leading through a crisis to feel like what you're doing needs to be done. Um, so I have derived a lot of meaning from it. And it's been really, I felt very fortunate that um, I've sort of lived through epidemics before, never a pandemic and not like this, of course, but, you know, I felt like, okay, you've been trained, you can do this. So in that way, um, that's the silver lining, mm -hmm. but I think it's also made it exhausting and not just for me. I mean, we know this, all the students are exhausted. Our senior management, our senior officers are exhausted. Um, and I think that like what I wrote in the memo, that feeling of just wow, what's the purpose? What are we doing here? You know, how much longer are we going to have to work on this problem set? Aren't we done with these sets of problems? And that's been hard to keep the stamina up. Um, but what I think we have worked on that keeps me sort of going is, you know, not panicking, realizing the truth is there is a way through this. Um, we have all the resources we need. And so far we've been doing pretty well. So you know, it's changed the job a lot, but I've learned a lot from it. And, you know, I'm grateful for it in some ways. Yeah. Were you talking Not about for the pandemic for the opportunity <laughs> to learn from the pandemic? Yeah. Just to uh, be quoted in context there. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of grateful to have this focus of being in a room and only having to do finals. Yeah. I think yeah. I'll make myself in a week, but right now. <laughs> the, me the memo you mentioned, was that the email you wrote? Yeah. your London trip was canceled yeah yeah so, so what was like what exactly were you feeling when that was canceled like what, what was the confusion going through your mind well so we had had I don't know five weeks of basically no cases um mm. things were good this was pre-omicron and mm. so people were going to travel the president again you know part of my job is to meet with alums and meet with donors raise money pitch, where's Vassar going? I'm like the external looking face of the college. And so I was really excited about going to London. And I also am part of a really uh, important summit on the global health impact of climate change with some great experts. And so I was excited about these things, both the fundraising part of my job and the academic part of my um, personhood. And then just like, boom, in you know one day, and we had hundreds of logistics, different people going. It was a complicated trip over like eight days. And in one day, I was like, poof, you just can't go because you have to wait two days once you land, then you have to get a PCR test. You got to wait for that and you can't do anything. You know, you're not going to take an eight day trip to Europe and have four days in the hotel. So I just had to cancel it. And now I'm doing all these meetings remotely and it's just not that fun. And, you know, frustrating because you kind of felt like I'm just getting going again to what my job really is. And oh, no, 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 you need to come back and do that same old problem set, COVID. <laughs> so that was really hard for me. And I wanted to write to the college because I felt like I can't be the only one who has had this happen to them. Like, I'm sure you had other things to do, Dean, than to sit in that hotel. I so, <laughs> yeah. So I just felt like an every person moment of we have to keep our stamina up and how I answered the question to myself of what am I doing with my life was um, it's a huge opportunity to build our social connections. And instead of being away, I'll go to every student production that exists this weekend and I'll talk to lots of people and have office hours and try to be present with people and ask others to be present with each other because that in the end, that is the strongest asset we have is our culture and our um, compassion and, I don't know, collaboration with each other to get through this together. Yeah, it's, it feels like hitting reverse on the treadmill and flying forward. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about the recent divestment from fossil fuels 
yeah. uh, that the trustees announced over October break. Yeah. It came up in 2017 and mm -hmm. the trustees voted not to. Um, so maybe a, a different way of asking is, um, well, one, were you, were you consulted in, in the in the decision? And Well, I am part of the board, so yeah. Right. Can you talk about what those conversations were like? Yeah, well, ever since I've been here in 2017, I've really um, listened to students, alums, our administrators, our faculty, um, to understand that uh, being responsible in our endowment investments was a priority for all these constituents. And um, it was I in 2017 that enabled the meeting between the on-campus group and the board, Cirque and Turk, uh, where the board reconsidered how they thought about it and then they published that their view, which has been on the web for a long time, that the endowment will not be used to uh, manage social issues, rather the college does social issues and the endowment is used to fund the college and the mm -hmm. college's work. Um, so that really had been the very strong opinion of the board and the investments committee. But each year, and actually at that time, the board said, what we really want to do is invest on carbon neutrality on the campus, you, we, let's do that. So I think CASC and the other students were really smart to focus on, let's just get as carbon neutral as we can. And that's when we got the climate action plan and we've really done a ton of things. And we raised $13 million last two Februarys ago to kind of transform lots of our buildings to make them more energy efficient. Um, so the board was excited about that and lots of climate change um, concerns but still didn't want to use the endowment in that way. Hmm. Um, I, and so we have talked about it every single year. It's never not on the agenda. This year, I think we were in a different place in the sense that ESG is really, um, you know, where you really think about the um, environmental, social, and sort of governance aspects of your investment. That is spreading throughout the globe. I mean, the biggest investment firms use ESG now. And so for the board to say, we will now use ESG as we think about our um, investments, our indirect and direct investments um, was much more kind of standard. It made a ton of financial sense. And if you're in it for the long-term, fossil fuel investments at this point are really very poor investments. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of different things came together. I think it was you know, four years of really working on it getting much further ahead in our own carbon neutrality on campus and our curricular changes on campus to be more, have more environmental studies efforts and markets changing, norms changing in the financial districts, um, et cetera, that sort of allowed uh, the board to feel comfortable with this. And you know, ultimately what it is, is we have no fossil fuels in our direct investments and don't have any intention of having fossil fuels in our direct investments. And for our indirect investments, all of the managers we use are looked at through an ESG lens to be sure that, in fact, they are really thinking about the environmental consequences of their investments. So that's the commitment. And I, I think it's really a great step forward. Yes, yeah, so there was some confusion of, over what an indirect investment was, what a direct investment was. There's yeah. also the question of if um, a fossil fuel endowment would be given as a gift. Would the school consider taking that? Um, is would the school take that gift seriously? Or would they have to reject it based on the principles from the announcement? You know, it's very hard um, to respond to a um, hypothetical. The board hasn't had that conversation at all, um, and I, it's like hard to imagine. The scenario in which that would happen. So I can't, I can't really say. Um, I do think it is true that the board feels that climate change is an emergency. We are, we do not have a board that's like, oh, what, you know, they are committed, um, deeply committed, really, to moving towards a green economy. So it's sort of hard. That's not really how gifts come in. Um, you know, we don't get gifts of big stocks that are fossil fuel industries. Um, so hard for me to really imagine even how that would be um, processed. Endowments, gifts are asked as part as potential gifts to the college, correct? Yeah. Um, so in other uh, vein, the, the divest from 
um, prisons has also come up. Yeah. Um, does the school have any investments in prison? In the no, okay. no, definitely not. Yeah. All right. So moving a, a little bit further, um, there was a land acknowledgement. Um, yeah. Published in the spring, and then just last week there was a formal ceremony. Um, for you, what is the significance of that land acknowledgement? Hmm. I think the significance of the land acknowledgement is um, really coming to terms with and making it a topic we talk about regularly. Um, where did this land come from? And what is the history of this land? To have a land acknowledgement that both, and it's very carefully worded, so the beginning of it um, acknowledges. The middle of it um, sort of recognizes the benefits that we all are having right now because of the displacement of indigenous people and through the European colonization. So it's like the recognition that we're in it too, even though we weren't here in 1868 or 18. Uh, sorry, 1683, when you know um, this came to a peak. And then the third part of it is a commitment to work with Native communities in more strong ways. And so um, that's so significant because our land acknowledgement is not just like um, phrases to say, there really is a commitment there. So one of the things we've done is join College Horizons, which is sort of like a college prep program for Native American students. And, you know, now we can A, recruit better, but B, do a lot better advising of Native American students about what you need to take in high school to get to a four-year college. So joining that organization, it's sort of like a quest bridge, but for Native American students, that's a really positive step forward. The other thing we've done is connect with the um, descendants of the three tribal groups that were on the Dutchess County land. And I actually know all of them now, which is amazing. I was just talking with one today. Um, and um, in different ways, we're connecting them to the curriculum. So Molly McGlennon is teaching with Karen Musso, who is from the Muncie um, Band of Mohicans, uh, Muncie Stockbridge Band of Mohicans. And you know that's sort of like a connection between our faculty and descendants of the people who were here. I think that's a great step forward. Um, and we also have just made links to the community colleges that are in the communities where descendants of the tribal groups that were here in Dutchess County um, are now. And we're trying to get those community colleges to work with our Exploring Transfer Program, which is um, you know, about 30 community college students spend summer here and take two courses and can get credit for their community college or a four-year college. So working with those Native American community colleges is sort of our goal for the next year. And I hope, um, I hope that'll be successful. That's what I was meeting with somebody about today. Uh, in 2020, there were remains discovered in the Blodgett basement that were um, sort of under the watch of a professor who's no longer at the school. Um, what's the status of those remains and, and the colleges working to comply with NACRA. Yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, the best way to explain this is that we have um, hired multiple different consultants that have worked with our faculty to ensure that all of the uh, collections and ancestors that were in Blodgett have been properly treated um, put in storage um, and wrapped appropriately with the proper rituals, et cetera, so they can be sent back. And in fact, we have repatriated um, most of these. Um, there is still a small part of it that is all put together and um, ready for repatriation, but we have to wait for those who are gonna receive it, the actual native communities to be ready to receive it but we're ready to go and those communications continue. Um, I think the, the part of, okay, let's repatriate, let's get this ready has been the easier side of this. The harder side is really facing just how shocking and awful this was, that this occurred at Vassar for decades since the nineties um, is really just hard to fathom, hard to come to terms with. Because of that, you know, of course, repatriating in the most respectful way we possibly can is the right thing to do. But in addition, 
what the college is working on now is looking carefully at all the other collections. What's in the lobe? What do we teach with in biology? Um, what's in Olmsted? And really thinking hard, not just thinking hard, studying. Um, do we have native collections here? Do we have ancestors who are still here? And let's be sure we have a system that everything has been treated with the respect um, that is so deserved. So that work is still ongoing. So the recent acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, um, some colleges sent out statements, you know, sharing their disagreement or displeasure with the verdict. Um, other schools remain quiet, but it's there's been, been a, a discussion, maybe even um, backlash to those statements. I'm curious what um, is Vassar's, or what do you see as Vassar's role in mediating those difficult conversations? In my role, I try really hard to respond to things that are affecting our students' everyday life. Um, and I get, how do I know what's affecting their everyday life? You know, we watch the news, we watch the media, I'm teaching in the classroom and students come and say, why are you doing something about this? And we then evaluate it to say, okay, this is changing the function of our students. It's hard for them to concentrate unless something is said about this, unless we um, convene discussions on it. So that's usually when I'll make a statement and then usually Dean Alamo or Dean Inouye will convene conversations to talk follow-up. It's not just a statement, but like, okay, so how do we metabolize this horrible news we've gotten? In this particular case, the effect that I heard about concretely with students and their functioning, you know, it didn't come intensively to me. And in fact, I felt that students were getting through it okay. And that makes a difference. And, you know, some may say that's reactive. I actually think it is being in touch with what the community needs. We don't want to we don't want to create an environment in which people are shocked every minute um, with just a constant news source of very difficult information. Um, on the other hand, we really want to think what is on students' minds that's bothering them that we could perhaps talk about more and make it easier for students to understand or talk, discuss openly with each other. So that's kind of how decisions are made. Um, it's tough work. It's controversial work. It's never easy to know really how to use the platform of the president's statements. But um, you know, those are some of the things that guide us. Do you worry about people reacting to a lack of a statement in these in these situations? Yeah, you worry um, both sides. You you know, and it always happens too. Um, if I make a statement, I get a lot of pushback always, doesn't matter what the statement says. You know, it's 40,000 alums, they care a lot. Um, and if I don't make a statement, I get pushback on that too. So you really have to develop some principles of what makes you um, react to things. And in fact, um, that's why it's so important for students always to speak up and say what's on their minds authentically, what is bothering them and what is it, you know, how can the, how can the institution be helpful to their learning in these events. Okay. Um, all right, last question, because I see we're running out of time. Uh, how do you like having uh, the HBO show filmed on campus? Uh, there you go. You <laughs> know, I have oh. to say, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I am not an HBO TV watcher. Let me just say, I do not really? have time for HBO. No, I just like television, I don't have time. But I had so much fun watching everybody else have fun. I mean, the students who are here that summer would constantly say, what's that, what's that? Oh, and I was in it. I even had professors say, well, they asked me to be an extra, you know, it was like very fun. Um, and I think it causes people to laugh a little bit and, uh, you know, gives us a little fame for something new. I, I think it's charming in its own way. Yeah. So we enjoyed it. Do they film it? Do they use the president's house to film? They it? did, yes. Even episode one, I've forgotten what they call it. It's the place, the lampoon type, the comic building. That is our house. Yeah. Catalan. You go watch. Catalan is our house. Yeah, you and, may have had to scrub down some of the services. <laughs> I did hardly recognize it. I mean, they really redid it, but um, yeah, my my kids have enjoyed it too. Kate, it's like, oh my God, mom my bedroom is in the house, <laughs> is in the film. Like, what are you doing? Sorry. <laughs> but it's, I think it's been, um, it's been a wild experience and kind of fun. Yeah, I think it's been fun to see stuff. Oh, that's good. Okay, PV, thank you okay. so much for coming on More Than Miscellaneous. You're welcome. It's nice to talk to you, Dean, and take care of yourself. Yeah.
Thanks, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks so much, PB, for coming in. Now we're going to sit down with VCXC. Hey, guys. Welcome in. Do you want to just take a second to introduce all your voices? Hi, I'm Tasha Allison. I am also a senior on the women's cross-country team from Bloomington, Indiana. And I'm Jack Castellino. I'm a senior as well on the men's side from Portland, Oregon. Sweet. So you guys are all uh, seniors in your, in your final, obviously, in your final season. So walk me through or just describe what it's like to be at the end of this uh, journey for you guys going through four and one of you five years of of cross country in college. I mean, it still doesn't feel like it's really over or ended. I, I don't think it's really set in um, that that was our last race. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. There have been some tears this weekend, both happy and sad. Um, it's just a really poignant time to have something that's been a main fixture of my life come to an end. Um, I've been running since I was in sixth grade informally, and I've been doing cross-country since seventh grade, so this has been a really important part of my life for a long time, and it's just so um, surreal to see it come to a close. Yeah, I mean, especially for me, like, I'm excited that you got that recognition and that maybe it's meant for something and not, and not to you, um, but I, in another respect, I'm also glad you are, um, kind of, you know, a fifth year in this program team, so... <laughs> So going back to the regionals race, which you know, and could it could have been the final race? What was your thoughts going in to that uh, to that race at Con College, and what from from the start line to when you find out from that about nationals? Uh, what was the thinking there? Were you reflecting? Were you thinking forward still? What were you trying to think about? Not think about? Yeah, I guess I can speak to my experience a little bit as well. Um, I, I felt similarly to Reed. Um, however, it was a bit of a different dynamic since the women's team um, this year wasn't really in a position to qualify as a team. So it very much felt like an individual endeavor to a certain extent. Um, and I, I remember just thinking um, in the hotel room the night before, like, I'm going to fight like hell to make sure this isn't my last uh, college cross-country race. Um, and I didn't have the best race at Con College earlier in the season, which I think was psyching me out a little bit. But luckily, I was able to perform on the day and let the positive self-talk um, and ambition drive me towards success and not let the um, fear hold me back. So I'm happy about that. Um, and I think another big part for me was trying to set a positive example for the younger women on the team who will hopefully have a chance to do this as well and make sure that no matter what the outcome was, I was expressing to them that we deserve to be proud of ourselves and celebratory about our successes in the season we had. Yeah, I think it was kind of balancing on the one hand, like as Reed said, there's a lot of pressure of this is our, our chance to you know do something the team had never done before. And so that had a lot of, you know, there's a lot riding on the race and you kind of have to think like, I can't blow it, but also try to reframe that in a more constructive way in terms of what you're actually going to do. Um, but then, I mean, it was also just a like a really beautiful day for a cross-country race. Like, it was sunny, and, you know, the course was right on the ocean, and we were having this, like, trip with all of our best friends. So there was definitely an aspect of just kind of, like, trying to get out of your head and slow down and, and enjoy that whole process uh, for one of the last times as well. So the day, the, the, the race itself in Louisville, uh, Sasha, you've been there before. You've been on that, that same course, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm interested to hear from your perspective as this is your second time qualifying for nationals. Uh, you qualified as a sophomore in 2019 uh, with, with the women's team. What was it like coming back? Was it, was it, any, was it, was it any less shocking? And then from the, the two guys, what did you find different from a regular cross-country race? 
Um, so for me, I was I think it was shocking in a different way because qualifying as an individual, I think, is a much different experience than qualifying as a team. And the whole um, the whole trip and the experience was just so much different um, going going as an individual. Um, and I think it was it was shocking to me for the second time that I had the capability of doing this um, without my teammates, not like obviously their encouragement and they're all so amazing and they they pushed me to this point but that I was able to do this without being kind of buoyed along by um the success of my teammates I think my sophomore year I was very much riding on my more uh quote-unquote successful teammates who were faster than me to pull me along and realizing that I had the capability of doing this myself was shocking to me um, even though no one ever t- really does it alone, um, there's so much help going in. But yeah, it was it was a, an amazing res- experience to return. And in terms of the race itself, it almost felt like a totally different race just because the conditions were so different. When I went my sophomore year, it had been pouring rain. It was basically just a mud pit the whole way through. Um, and this time it was it was a beautiful day. It was, there was some mud, but it was relatively dry. Um, it was just, it just felt like a totally different course and a totally new experience, despite some of the similarities. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the main, like, I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was just the level of energy that goes into that race, both how much intensity there is at the start line during the race, but also from the spectators, just like there's so much energy. It's so loud throughout the whole course. There's never really a quiet moment, which is pretty unique um, because just the nature of the sport is like it's hard to have people cover a five-mile area and just be loud the whole time, but that was certainly the case for this race. Um, So, you know, it it was almost sensory overload at times compared to what I'm used to. Um, but it, I was really trying to appreciate that and really feed off of that energy. Um, so it was definitely a unique last race for sure. Yeah, I mean, the other big difference to any other cross-country race that I've raced ever, I guess, is just how packed it was. I mean, there was a – at 1K, I think there was a six-second gap from first place to 150th place. Mm. So there was just like – rows and rows of people not in any free space on the course for basically the entire time um which i mean on some level it's a totally different kind of racing but uh, you know it's also still just running it doesn't feel um too crazy but yeah i mean that was that was just wild how many people were going uh so fast and so so dense in the field and if i might add um returning to this experience after a year of like sport during covid was just absolutely Mm. wild even though i remembered how packed it was and how how loud and rambunctious the spectators were it was um i had definitely i think a lot of us had acclimated to performing our sport in a very private setting and in a spectator free setting and having spectators back and having a race that was so densely packed after um about a year a little over a year of um having the sport very like structured around pandemic regulations was i think made it an even more heightened feeling of sensory overload and um just packed density yeah uh did any of the coaches say anything to to sort of put the race in context or calm the nerves or because because this environment is so different from regionals environment the wheel league environment or just the, the regular race you know i think i would point to the words that james gave to us the day before the regionals race which kind of james mccallum yeah. yes which is our coach james which kind of reiterated before the nationals race which essentially went as you know, there comes a point in every cross-country race where where you're dealing with just an immense amount of pain and i think you can kind of compromise your ambitions when under that pressure and experiencing that pain and just remember that it's not about the individual it's about the team that your love for your team and where you want to go as a team needs to be at the forefront of your mind and that needs to motivate you to go 
beyond that pain to or keep enduring it. And I think that was incredibly helpful. And he also just put the race into histor- or team historical context too, just how the team has never gone before. And we got a chance to kind of write that chapter, what it looks like for the team to be at nationals or the men's team had never gone before. I think one of the things that's been a recurring theme throughout this season for me that James has kind of been saying, I think to me for a lot of races is basically the message that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be you, which it's, it's kind of going to, it sounds really cheesy, but it's going to like make me tear up because I feel like I just put so much pressure on myself to be the best runner and to be so good at my sport sport and in classes and in life in general and James and my teammates reaffirming to me that the the way I am now is good enough to be um, a successful runner a nationals qualifier just made I think it made a lot of difference for me and it it really rings true now that I have I didn't have to become somebody else to qualify for nationals I like I as just Sasha Allison could do this um, I think, yeah, I think we on this team, we have a very strong sense of legacy in remembering those who came before us. And I, I've heard so many stories about the amazing women who have gone to nationals before me. Um, I think Heather Ingraham is a big one. Um, Johanna Spangler, Elizabeth Forbes, Audrey Pietmeyer, I could keep going, but I, <laughs> I keep hearing these stories about them. And in my head, they've become these legends that are larger than life. And I think I could never measure up to that. But having James remind me, they were just, they were people and you're a person too. And like, you just have to be you. Um, that made all the difference for me. So you all ran incredibly fast. Curious. One of Jack, you set the men's AK record. Was there a time in the race where you realized, oh no, I'm over my skis, or was it, oh, I'm 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 way ahead of schedule. I'm gonna keep rolling with this. What was because you you had to know during the race that you were going a bit quick. Well, I definitely wasn't looking at my watch, but there were some. I mean, the course was set up so professionally. There were like timers and stuff. So at two miles, I saw was. It was like 9.47 or something, which is way faster than we would normally come through. Uh, for the people, is a mile split, what pace is that? For the people um, like 4.53 or so, 4.54. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was pretty cool to see because I wasn't feeling too overwhelmed or anything, and that's like a good 15, 20 seconds faster than I would have expected to come through. Um, so just kind of... I mean, that's the kind of feedback that if you're feeling good is really good. If you're feeling overwhelmed might have caused me to get psyched out. But luckily, I think I we had this good position kind of on the outside of the giant pack. So it wasn't like we were super boxed in. Um, and I just felt like I was not running outside of myself. I was able to move up around people still and to and just saw the, the really good time feedback was a good confidence booster. Sasha, you and Augusta were pretty at least at the end of the race were you guys trying to work together throughout yeah I think that we have um, slightly different race strategies but ones that complement each other really well I'm kind of a hard starter I like to get out and establish a good position because I personally struggle with motivating myself to catch up to people if I'm already behind Um, and Augusta is more of a like progressive runner so she can start off um, a little bit more Um, moderate and um, slowly catch up throughout the race to pick people off Um, and I think both of us were definitely trying to pick people off but I certainly wanted to um, start a little bit harder than she did Um, and we we definitely work with each other's positions in the races Um, she she keeps in we dyed our hair for the race we dyed our hair bright pink so she was keeping an eye on my bright pink ponytail um, to keep me in her sights and measure that distance between us and then when I can when I feel her catching up to me I I just try to stick with her Um, and we she's I want to give a big shout out to her because she's a big reason I think I've been I've had a very successful season she's such an amazing training partner and she keeps me going through all of those hard workouts and races and I don't think I could have qualified or could have had the successful season I had if not for 
her supporting me in races and just in practice every day just being there for me and and continually pushing me and um yeah we've just been I think we've been really supportive of one another both in the way we train together and just the way we talk to each other and create a really like um supportive environment read any thoughts from the pack what was the race like for you um I I think you're in a race at nationals where you don't know a lot of your competitors you're not familiar with the teams you're around which is something that i really enjoy at say liberty leagues or regionals really any other race we've had this season so i think i was really looking for those guys from our region from our league that i know and kind of working off of them and trying to keep jack in sight and kind of use him as a like relative point that i want to stay near um, but you know, there, there's, you're constantly around people. You're always trying to just move up like one person after another, not let anyone buy you. Um, so, you know, that was definitely unique. Um, yeah, I, I think it was nothing too overwhelming, I guess. Just still focusing on like picking off guys, like focusing on the guys, you know, were there, uh, any interesting luminaries at the race? Any any minor celebrities? Any pr- any running celebrities? Was Zach Levitt there? <laughs> no, no runner, YouTuber, podcaster Zach Levitt <laughs> was not there. Luckily, um, uh, there is you know a couple legendary coaches. This old guy from North Central College, which is a very historically successful program. He looks about like a thousand years old, but uh, gets the job done for them. So he was there. Um, I don't know. I I try not to you know pay attention to that too much how do you celebrate nationals i sat down (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no i mean i think when we heard it came in 21st that was a big deal yeah i think it was a really strong point of pride because we beat a lot of teams that i don't think ever would think that vassar would be like around them in the standings um so that was really cool um i don't know i you know just trying to regroup with your teammates and just like let each other know you know you appreciate them because it was our last race so yeah it was pretty sentimental yeah I think it was quite similar for me I immediately Augusta and I finished pretty close to each other and we immediately just um found each other and pulled each other into a big hug and um found our coaches and um it was just like a major love fest everyone giving each other hugs and um getting pretty sentimental and it was um really cute we actually had two alums hannah martin and elsa erling come back to watch the race and they made us a little banner uh like a vcxc flag to cheer us on during the race um they were part of that 2019 national squad um, and they gave it to us at right after we finished. And then Augusta and I just kind of immediately wrapped each other up in it. Um, and as kind of a way of just like c- closing each other in and um, wrapping each other in the experience um, and keeping each other warm because it's pretty cold when you finish. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just uh, a big like emotional moment for us. Any takeaways or any memories from the trip or anything that stood out from this senior year for you guys uh, that, that you think maybe tangentially related to running but is something that's going to stick with you as a certain memory of the team or the, or the experience? Um, I think having a lot of, once we made it, having a lot of alums reach out to me just saying how proud they are, um, how cool it is that we've actually finally, like, actualize this goal which has been our goal for four years but all of these people's goals that they were not able to um succeed uh that was really cool kind of just put into perspective how you know for me a big deal it was um because it's definitely something i immersed myself in for four years so i think that was really cool yeah, I think the alums reaching out was a big thing for me as well. But I also just think the daily journey of being on this team has meant so much to me. I don't know if I can pinpoint like one specific memory, but I think just the people and um, how wonderfully supportive all of the um, the team has been for me. Um, I specifically want to give a shout out to my fellow senior, Kira Janelle, who was our lead runner um, when the 2019 team went to nationals and i think she's just been supporting and inspiring me pretty much every day 
since then. Um, I, I look up to her so much as a runner and a person and her performance inspires me and her ability to continue being such a team player and an amazingly positive force on the team throughout injury and um, personal difficulty. And I really just attribute so much of um, what made this season special to her and to our team and the wonderful bond that we've the wonderful bonds we've forged with each other well guys thanks so much for coming in and talking about the trip and the experience uh, we're all really proud of you and and hope you celebrate for a while it's an amazing um, accomplishment thanks for having us yeah, i'm happy to do it for the honors, we're going to play Thumb and Drum, Reed Dolan's favorite Spud Cannon song. Good day, son. Thank you to VCXC for coming in. Now we have news editor Lucy Brewster talking about the endowment and the recent divestment, if we can call it that, from fossil fuels. Uh, this is the announcement from the Board of Trustees. Uh, Lucy, thanks so much for being here again. Thank you for having me. This was uh, sort of an investigation into the announcement that Vassar was going to be disinvesting from fossil fuels. Uh, and then it quickly became something about finding out how exactly the endowment works. So for the layman, uh, what is the endowment and how exactly does it connects to the financial workings of the college on a broad, in a very broad way. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we sort of see students organizing around divestment and, you know, these issues around the endowment, but it is something that is not um, super intuitive or there's super wide, widely um, advertised information about it in terms of Vassar's endowment. So the endowment is basically a fund to support like the financial stability of the college and a private like a private educational institution not all colleges have endowments not all private colleges have endowments and almost like Vassar has one of the highest endowments of anyone um, and it's basically a pool of gifts from donors and the principle of so the endowments invested and so the principle of the gift isn't spent, it's the revenue from the investment. So if you give an endowed gift to Vassar or another college, your actual the actual gift you give won't be spent. It, the pr the principle won't be spent. Um, and just the uh, revenue from the investment will be spent. So then it kind of gets into the issue of how is the endowment invested? Um, and Vassar's endowment is invested through this firm called Call Capital. And um, like we don't have an in-house chief investment mm -hmm. officer. That's like that role of the, the endowment is overseen by a committee on the board of trustees and then managed by this firm. And it's invested in indirect and direct funds. Yeah, so you talked to Brian Swarthout uh, for this piece. Could you explain his role in the college? Yeah, so he basically oversees, like, he's the vice president for finance and administration, but he oversees a lot of different financial. He, he sort of oversees, like, the umbrella of, like, financial administration in the college. But he, in terms of the endowment, he picks the people on the um, investment committee on the board of trustees. Like, he staffs that committee, and he doesn't necessarily like make the decisions like the committee on the board of trustees does but um you know like he's the administrator in charge of investing and sort of that side of like the financial decisions that the college makes and then outside investing he's in charge of sort of a wide umbrella of financial issues in the college from what you gathered does the administration for example the president or or, or Swarthout to what extent do they have control over the investments, or is it in the trustees, or is it specifically in capital Hall Capital that's making the most financial decisions? It's really in the hands of the trustees. I mean, they oversee the managers at Hall Capital. It's not um, up to President Bradley or mm -hmm. anyone in the administration. I mean, they could 
theoretically be in on the discussions or give their opinion, but they're not voting in terms of the decisions about investments. Mm -hmm. So how do the trustees vote on specific decisions? For example, this decision to divest, there was uh, a potential investment that came up that was offered to them and they said that they denied it. So is there a voting process that, that the trustees go through? My understanding is that there's not a voting process for every single mm-hmm. change in, like, in the fund. Um, every single, like, there's basically indirect funds that Vassar's invested in through Hall Capital, which is the vast majority of the endowment. Um, like Swarth out said, 88%. So in terms of fluctuations in what the college is invested in, I d- not everything is a vote, mm-hmm. but I think for something as big as this new climate-conscious investment strategy announcement, there was a unanimous vote yes. So I think my understanding is that it's just for like direct investments that are going to have like a a wider impact or like a significant shift in their investment strategy, that would be something they'd vote on. But for every shift and then, you know, for every shift in the endowment and investments, they don't vote on everything. So for this specific decision, um, the college, the trustees announced that they were no longer investing directly in fossil fuels. What does that open for indirect investments? What does an indirect investment even mean? Yeah, so that's a great question. So an indirect investment in terms of how Vassar defines it is a di- is an investment not held directly in Vassar's name but is held through Hall Capital in a fund, like a mutual fund, a hedge fund, like venture capital. Those are all um, indirect investments. And basically, so for indirect investments through funds, through this um, – through the through Hall Capital, Vassar is basically using an ESG investing strategy, like putting an ESG mandate on new investments. So that basically is the standard for like ethical investing, and that includes like environmental considerations. So Vassar is putting environmental considerations. That's going to screen all their investments, even indirect ones. Um, but the complication is that ESG isn't a really set in stone standard. Yeah, and where like does ESG come from? ESG came from, bas- it started. It was being used earlier, but it's sort of this ethical, conscious investing strategy and like norm. And different firms have been, like the, um, the US government, like President Biden's administration is now like promoting ESG and sort of like advising people to use it's like environmental social and governance consideration so it's basically looking at like the environmental impact um the social implications of a company and like the governance so like their internal structure so that's looking at you know like if there's a company that's involved in like an oil spill that would be like environmental and like social that would like lower their esg profile and then governance like if they don't have any women on their board or something like that that's like something that would be like a um theoretically the things that are being looked at and they are the things that are being looked at for people that determine what a company's like esg rating or esg risk risk factor is and um so now it's pretty i mean i think now it's pretty well understood that esg is also like a financial like basic like ESG investing isn't really financially harmful like it used to be thought that not investing in fossil fuel like sort of going this route more ethical investing was gonna lower like revenues and be harmful like profit wise but that's not really true anymore or it's been found that that's not really true so now it's being like more widely accepted so the ESG announcement well let me back up how long has ESG investing been a part of, of the trustees' investment strategy? Did it just come in the recent weeks with the announcement, or has it been practiced before? Yeah, they. it's a little unclear. Swarthout says they've been working towards this for a long time, sort mm-hmm. of like they've been moving towards this, and now it's finally complete, like the divestment. Um, 
But this is the first time they've announced publicly that they're using ESG considerations on all their investments. So officially, it's very recent, but they sort of signal that this is something that they've been moving towards. Yeah. Something I found fascinating in your reporting was that the college's invest return on investment uh, was tripled, more than tripled this year. What did Swarthout say about that uh, return on investment and the underlying causes, what was going on in the stock market? Yeah, well, um, a lot of endowments and in general, the, and the stock market um, was saw excellent returns in the past fiscal year, sort of as the economic rebound from COVID lockdowns. Um, so all endowments, actually, not all, but a lot of our peer institutions' endowments also grew like significantly in the last year and um i think it's just the stock market has done really well yeah. i mean if we go back to the beginning of the covid lockdown the college was operating at a deficit yeah at that time and obviously the like you, you said the distinction between the revenue is what's able to be used by the college is, is separate from the endowment as a whole but Clearly, Vassar has done very, very well since that deficit was run up. Yeah, I mean that Vassar financially is in a very is in a very stable um, position. I mean, last year when I talked to President Bradley, that was one thing I asked. And this was at the end of you know last spring, so in May, and even then she basically was saying that Vassar is financially in a very good position. I mean, I think all colleges had a lot of concerns at the beginning of COVID and last year, but. Um, I think partially because of this huge return, Vassar is in a really stable financial position. What are the unanswered questions that you came away with from this article? So still things you still wanted to, to learn more about or questions you didn't get to ask or questions that weren't answered? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, definitely we wrote about this issue of like basically ESG not being clear and then some fossil fuel companies themselves like meeting some ESG standards um, just because there isn't a totally like rigid system for meeting an ESG you know safe investment um, like we looked and there's fossil fuel companies that are rated as a low risk investment in terms of ESG considerations so when we asked like is there does this mean that there's no chance they'll be fault. Basically, we sort of ask, like, given your ESG consideration policy, is there fossil fuel investments in the portfolio but ones that meet the investment manager's standards? And Swarthout basically said, responded that they're beyond the ESG standards. This investment manager considers many things, which didn't directly answer what we were asking. So that's... Um, you know, sort of an unanswered question, like what it means for those indirect investments that are usually pooled funds that have ESG considerations. And also I think there's still a lot more transparency with the endowment that students want. I mean, I think these students who are organizing, um, namely SEED and VC Prison Divest, which is about um, divesting from private prisons. And Vassar doesn't have any investments in private prisons but could it have indirect in investments they i asked about esg screening for private prisons and swarthout said they don't um they don't and also private prisons have all had pretty high risk esg ratings but there are companies related to the prison industrial complex that the org brought up um so i think that's something that also warrants maybe more investigating. I think in general, people just want to know what the college is invested in specifically, and it's just hard to find out because the Board of Trustees is pretty separated from the student body and not super accountable to the student body. Mm. So there's always going to be a little bit of, um, always going to be a little bit of a, a barrier. Like you said, a large deal of the endowment comes from gifts. Did the college indicate if they would still be receiving fossil fuel gifts from the endowment? Yeah, so we asked them if they would receive a like a non-liquid asset gift and a stake in a fossil fuel company, for example, and they basically said 
So what that said, they'd have to examine the specifics at the time. So it's not clear. It's definitely a definite no. It's not a, it's not a definite no. Right. But, I mean, we asked about one hypothetical situation. So it's, it's a little bit, it's all theoretical. But they definitely didn't say there's no way they would accept that in that situation. Is there anything that Swarthout or anyone else you talked to said that they specifically could not comment on? No, there wasn't. I mean, there were answers that had, you know, maybe a little bit skirting around the question, but there was nothing that Swarthout couldn't comment on. Okay. There's still some questions to be asked and yeah. down the road. Um, Lucy, thanks so much for coming in. This is a fascinating article. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I encourage everyone to read it. Um, we're going to play you out with Father Foy, of course. Thank you so much to VCFT and Lucy Brewster for coming in. I'm your host, Nick Pitsky, um, former managing editor at the NISC, actually, now contributing editor. Uh, we're going to be going through a little bit of changes, but we'll keep the radio show going. Here is Father Foy.